This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hey ho friends, welcome to the broadcast. Voice is a little raspy, but you get this in the summer, you're in and out of the air conditioning constantly, in and out of the car, then into an air-conditioned building, hopefully you have uh, air conditioning, and uh, the heat, you know, you go from, I don't know about you, but I get the air conditioning cranked in my little tin can. Uh, bombing around uh, the uh, the streets of Toronto, the good, and I get I, I like basically I'll have icicles forming on my glasses, and then I get out and it's like fifty degrees, like we had with the humidity uh, humidity uh, late last week. I think Friday it was supposed to get up around fifty. So the constant uh, uh, temperature change actually takes its toll, especially uh, on the voice. So if I'm sounding a little bit like Tom Waits tonight, that's why. How are you? I had the uh, I had the boys. Um, it's summer. What do you do with twin boys? You got to keep them occupied and busy for eight weeks, right? Until uh, school starts, and it's not like you know they'll uh, they'll sit for any uh, extended period of time and allow you to, I don't know, maybe revisit some math equations just to keep them sharp? No, no, no. Got to keep them busy for the full eight weeks. So I had them at Casa Loma. If you don't know Toronto, you must get up here. You must visit Casa Loma, Spanish, right? House on the Hill. Beautiful. It's, it's a castle. It's an incredible, an incredible uh, uh, building, edifice, if you will. And uh, so I took the boys. Now, this is a, 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 a later castle, right? Built uh, around 1914 by one of the uh, local industrialists and, and uh, financiers. So the boys are five and a half. Their idea of a castle and my idea of a castle are a little bit different. And as soon as they step uh, uh, set foot in the place, they said, Dad, where are the knights? Where is the armor? <laughs> Uh, there's, well, there's a few pieces of armor, a couple of swords hanging around, but, uh, they weren't exactly disappointed. At least they didn't let on, but, uh, uh, mental note, you know, if you promise a castle to, to five and a half year olds, it better come equipped with knights, suits of armor, uh, lances, a dragon might be nice. Anyway, so that was my, uh, my weekend. Hope you had a good one as well. We have a good show for you tonight, but before we get to that, I have a special announcement. I'm going to... Um, let you in on a secret. We have a an affiliate 
we have another radio station that has taken the Conspiracy Show. And so a, uh, a big, hey, how are you, welcome to the Conspiracy Show to our friends at AM 1350 at WZGM. You'll notice I said Z. Uh, WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina. So, welcome, welcome, and uh, thank you for, uh, for spending your part of your weekend with The Conspiracy Show. Hopefully there'll be more affiliates, and uh, I'll let you know when they come on board. But uh, again, 1350 WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, visit them on, I believe they have a Facebook page, so check them out. All right, my next guest, my first guest is uh, no stranger to this program, and man, this guy just cranks out the most Im- unimaginably wonderful uh, books. This, I believe, is uh, somewhere around his 21st or 22nd book. It's The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. Nick Redfern uh, has also uh, given us the NASA conspiracies, the real men in black keep out, and contactees, and uh, also contributes to a number of uh, wonderful uh, uh, magazines dealing with uh, UFOs and the paranormal. Hey, Nick, good to have you aboard. Welcome once again. Hey, Richard. Thanks for having me back on again. How did you research uh, 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 this book? The, you know, the, the, uh, the, the CIA, of course, uh, front and center, as always, uh, in these types of investigations. How do, you, how do you delve into this subject material? Well, sometimes, you know, it can be through all manner of different ways and sometimes kind of alternative ones. You know, sometimes you write a book and people contact you and say, hey, you know, I read your book, thought it might be interested in this story that my father or grandfather told me, you know, and, and things like that. And so some of the stories actually came from that perspective where one of the people actually said, you know, my father was involved in something weird um, where the government was supposedly looking for the remains of Noah's Ark on Mount Ararat, Turkey. And then I heard a few snippets. When I, I sort of looked into this a little bit and found a few snippets where um, things have been mentioned in the past about the CIA supposedly having an interest in this. So, you know, I began to dig further like that. So, you know, I guess even though we're dealing with sort of paranormal topics, I kind of use the sort of same techniques that you would apply to any sort of investigative journalism story. You know, you just follow leads, witnesses, sources, try and get corroborative data and evidence, use the Freedom of Information Act, and then try and put it all together and, and see what you've got, you know. So it's, even though the stories can be weird, you know, you, you apply just regular, you know, investigative techniques, I think. Does the CIA, or did they, or do they have, like, a weird desk, someone, that's, that's yeah. their job, they're the case officer, and they investigate weird stuff, much the same as, say, Fox Mulder. Well, yeah, I've never actually, I hate to sort of blow the, bu- the bubble, so to speak, but I've never found that out. What I have found is that over the years, various departments have had an interest for different reasons. Um, and, but that doesn't mean it doesn't all go to, you know, say like a, a black box type scenario, you know, where there is a, a department that everything gets filtered through to. That's, that's certainly not impossible. But what I've found over the years is that, for example, the CIA Scientific Intelligence Division, you know, they've been involved in science and technology, you know, in various investigations relative to UFOs and remote viewing. Um, some of the more espionage-based organizations, they were certainly, within the CIA, they were sort of 
uh, heavily interested in remote viewing as well. But there are other aspects that they weren't involved in, like photo analysis of UFOs, which was, you know, again, dealt with by the science and technology people. But again, it doesn't mean that there isn't sort of an overall body that takes an interest, but they sort of farm it out to the ones who are experts in different areas, really. Nick Redfern, the author of The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. I want to talk to you about the CIA's top secret file on Noah's Ark. Mm. How did you find out that they had a top secret file? How did you get your hands on it? Well, I mean, it's one of these situations where, you know, this was actually a story that part of it did come to me from a family member of someone who was involved in one of these investigations back in the 1970s, actually doing photo analysis uh, to try and determine what was shown on a number of CIA photographs as something weird and apparently sort of artificial-looking on Mount Ararat. But a number of people over the years have come forward to talk about, you know, hey, I was in the military and, you know, we flew this mission over Turkey where we were ordered to photograph this weird-looking thing. And, you know, there there was never sort of a book written on it, but there have been little snippets where people have come forward and told their stories publicly. But the thing was, it hadn't really sort of been followed up to a deep extent. And so, you know, various researchers have got little snippets of, you know, one person here and somebody else had spoken to the granddaughter of this person and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But what it needed was sort of sort of a unifying look at it. So what I did was to basically sit down and collate all the information, you know, go through all the published books, et cetera, and hardly anything really had been mentioned about the CIA and the military angle, just, you know, a sentence here and a sentence there. But there were a few names to be followed up on, you know, so I um, did people searches, you know, on the net to track down who was still alive and say, hey, you know, I I remember you, you went public with this or you mentioned something on a TV show 20 years ago. Are you willing to talk? And, you know, what I always say is, well, do you know anybody else who may know something? And then it went from there, it went from there, et cetera, et cetera. One of the people told me that, contrary to what a lot of people thought, you know, these stories about the CIA hiding the truth about Noah's Ark, although there was a truth to it, they said the CIA never re- never referred to it as Noah's Ark. They said that it officially in the Pentagon, it was known as the Ararat Anomaly, Mount Ararat supposedly being the landing place of Noah's Ark. So what I did was not to file a Freedom of Information Request Act um, for Noah's Ark, because the agency can legitimately say, I mean, they're not breaking the law by doing this, they can legitimately say, we don't have a file titled Noah's Ark. Right, right. You know, that yes. they can, but they don't have to tell you they have one fo- titled Ararat Anomaly. You no, know, you better know what you're asking for. You better know yeah, what you're you asking for. You have to be for. very specific, and, and legally, if you don't ask it in specific terms, they are not obliged to fill the dots in for you, if you like. Um, And so I filed it for the Ararat Anomaly, got a few pages, um, then a few more pages, and then a year or so after I appealed withholding on some of the papers, more came through and more came through. Altogether, I got about 70 pages demonstrating that the story actually goes back to 1949 when a U.S. Air Force spy plane uh, was flying over Mount Ararat. He was actually heading to the border of the Soviet Union where the spy plane was going to photograph a new Russian base that was being built in the area. And the crew used Mount Ararat as kind of a marker point to where they were going. But as they approached the mountain, um, literally very near the peak, one of the guys on board said he could see this weird 
wing-like structure sticking out of the ice. And, you know, people think when you think of Turkey, they imagine that, you know, that the mountain is like just sandy and desert and rock. It's not. You know, that the peak of Mount Ararat is permanently ice and snow-capped all year round, pretty much. You know, we're talking thick sheets of ice. It's like the top of the Himalayas or something. And this is one um, of the possible locations that Noah's Ark was said to uh, possibly have, have come to rest uh, after the flood. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in other words, if people see something weird sticking out the ice on Mount Ararat, their first thoughts, you know, is, could it be Noah's Ark? And so the crew photographed whatever this thing was that became known as the Ararat Anomaly. And, of course, the, the photographs vanished into the heart of the Pentagon. And Actually, a couple of them have, or about half a dozen have surfaced into the public domain now, but a lot still haven't. Um, and the files actually referenced a lot of intriguing things about how it named various people in the agency who'd looked into this and how uh, things like spy satellites had been used to try and uh, photograph it in the 70s. Uh, also talks, interestingly enough, about how the CIA actually were monitoring published books on the subject. For example, there's a, one of the files talks about how in 1975 an author had got a book out um, on Noah's Ark, and there's actually a directive in one of the files ordering um, people in the scientific and technical, technolo- excuse me, technological intelligence branch of the CIA to actually go out to the shopping mall where this guy was giving a lecture and listen what, to what he had to say. And the documents actually say something along the lines of this might help us in our search for the truth about the Noah's Ark problem. Now, that's like a literal quote. And, of of course, you know, this sort of begs the question, well, if there was nothing to be found and there was no sort of real deep investigation, number one, why was the CIA sending people out to shopping malls to listen to what published authors were saying about it? And number two, why were they even referring to it as a problem? You know, you'd think it would be an issue more for historians, archaeologists. Yeah, I'm trying to wrap my head around it too, Nick, because here we are, the height of the Cold War. You would think the CIA would have a lot on their plate at this point in time, and yet here they are, as you say, going around uh, listening to to, to authors speak about Noah's Ark at shopping malls and analyzing uh, aerial photographs and so forth. What I mean, did, did you... I hear the music creeping up. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. We'll continue to delve into this. But I also, of course, want to get to uh, some rather interesting Pentagon documents which posited that the Egyptian pyramids were constructed via levitation. We'll get to that and more with Nick Redfern, the author of The Pyramids and the Pentagon. Stay with us. governments, and sometimes entire civilizations, what goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome back. 
Nick Redfern, you may have seen him on the History Channel's Ancient Aliens, a monster quest and UFO hunters and uh, over on across the pond uh, in the UK, the BBC's Out of This World. And right now he's here with us on The Conspiracy Show. We're talking about his new book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, the government's top secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts and lost civilizations. And we're talking... Uh, we were talking earlier before the break about the CIA's secret file, top secret file on Noah's Ark. And uh, Nick, were you ever able to ascertain, um, you know, what was the CIA's preoccupation and under whose orders were they investigating whether or not this Ararat artifact uh, was in fact uh, the final resting place of Noah's Ark? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a good question, Richard, because you would imagine that, you know, that, as you quite rightly said before the break, at the height of the Cold War, you would think the, the CIA would have other things to do than look for the remains, you know, of a rotted old boat or whatever was left of it, you know. It didn't really make sense. You know, you would imagine that was more something along the lines for archaeologists, theologians, historians, people like that. Um, and that would be the case if, you know, the only thing that was on the CIA's mind was that, well, it must be just an old rotted hull of a boat. You know, maybe the legends are true about Noah's Ark. But what's interesting is that not just the CIA, but other agencies of the military and governments and the intelligence community were also monitoring the idea and look and actually opening files on authors who were talking about this particular issue, namely the idea that what if Noah's Ark wasn't just sort of an old boat, what if the stories about this ark, this huge ark filled with sort of two-by-two two animals, what if it was actually an alien UFO? And what if the stories about, for example, two-by-two two animals, this was a theory posited later on, what if they were sort of collecting DNA and sort of genetic material of, you know, the entire species, different species across the planet and sort of preserving them in an arc-like scenario in the event of some disaster where the planet would need to be repopulated again after, you know, things had calmed down after a turbulent worldwide uh, disaster. And th again, some of these files have been declassified, demonstrating how FBI agents had gone and sat in the audiences and prepared lengthy reports on authors who were talking about the idea that perhaps the story of Noah's Ark coming to rest on Mount Ararat was actually a UFO landing or crash landing on the mountain you know, complete with um, sort of biological materials of, you know, pretty much all the different animals on the planet. So in other words, if it was some sort of UFO, or there is even just a, a belief or a, a suspicion that that might have been the case, I think it's pretty clear that the reason for looking into this would be to see if there was any sort of capital to be gained from finding and trying to understand an advanced technology. In other words, you know, it, it was never a case of, just trying to determine if the old stories of Noah's Ark could be vindicated. It was to determine if there was some sort of, I guess, technology that you could extract from the past and sort of weaponize in the present, if you like. That's absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's mind-blowing is what it is, yeah. Nick. But uh, And I'm guessing these documents were heavily redacted, lots of uh, black marks all over the pages to protect names and dates and, 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 uh, and yeah, so forth. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the problem. I mean, what in today's world, you can understand it, that if uh, some of these files, you know, they date only from, like, the last 10 years, you know, they're not going to release files, obviously, with agents' names on who could still be in the agency. You know, you can understand that, you know, and I don't push for that sort of stuff because, you know, it's the last thing you want is, you know, 
causing trouble for people in service. But what's interesting is that, you know, we have the testimony from very credible people who've talked about sort of the U-2 missions to photograph Noah's Ark, and yet those files haven't surfaced. We have references to the satellite footage. Uh, we have references to the CIA going out, as I said, and, you know, monitoring lectures. We've got the FBI files. But some of the more intriguing stuff about, you know, covert spy missions to overfly the mountain with high-powered cameras, etc. in the 70s, that's not there. And what's interesting is that there's like a, a decade or more from like the mid-60s through the mid-70s where all the files, there's just nothing. And yet that isn't reflected by the, what the witnesses are saying. So it's almost like some a whole section has been sort of pulled from the file. Or, you know, it may be that it's held by other agencies or departments that, you know, their material hasn't come up for declassification or it's buried so deep that even that some of the freedom of information people, you know, don't know what the agency's holding. You know, that, that's actually something that does happen, that, you know, people within the agency, if they're not cleared and the stuff's still classified, even they can't get hold of it to review it. You must, you must find that, that that's the tantalizing part of this. It's not the stuff that you find, it's the stuff that's missing. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, and why I find it intriguing is that, you know, if there, was no, there were no snippets of information on this other material, then you could legitimately say, well, maybe there just isn't anything else. But when you've got people talking about it, and we do have some files, you know, they're clearly talking about real events, you know, analyzing footage or photographs. I mean, there are a number of stories I relate in the book, for example, about um, photographic experts, you know, whose job it is to try and determine what a photograph taken from 50,000 feet up, you know, actually shows, you know, that that's their entire job. And some of those people have come forward, or actually, I should say that the son of one of the people who was involved in this came forward and I interviewed him. And he said, you know, my dad saw these photographs, was asked to try and determine what they showed. None of that material has surfaced. But because we know other aspects of the story are true, are true, you know, it pretty much is a given that this is a true story as well. But it's like, well, where are the files? And you're right, you know, what's more intriguing is probably what's contained in the material that hasn't surfaced. Last question on this, and then we'll move on to the uh, the pyramids, uh, uh, Nick, and that is any evidence or any hint in those documents that the CIA may have dispatched some team to, to uh, on an expedition to Mount Ararat? Well, not so much in the files, but I mean, I do actually have sort of pretty much a whole chapter on this in the book concerning something called Project Moondust. And Project Mundus was a legitimate military program, which still exists today, but it has a new name, and apparently that name is still classified and has not been released. But it used to be called Mundus, and the idea was that it would, its entire mandate was to basically acquire uh, for the U.S. military overseas advanced technologies. For example, let's say, you know, a Russian spy satellite crashed in the Pacific Ocean. Mundus and its related personnel would be sent out and try and get to the sea before the Russians and retrieve whatever it was, take it back to the Air Force's Foreign Technology Division, and then they'd analyze it to see how advanced the technology was and if anything could be learned from it. And what's interesting is that Mundus people were copied on much of this material. So in other words, you know, they were looking to see if there was any technology that could be exploited and recovered. And this ties in with your, your question. One of the people I interviewed um, for the book said that his father was involved in an operation to analyze photographs um, of this Ararat anomaly. 
and it fell under the jurisdiction, he said, of a project called Moondust. And, of course, you know, this is the one that its official mandate is to acquire and analyze advanced technology for U.S. military gain. So, and these files talk about some sort of like a Delta Force-type team being parachuted onto the mountain to examine this thing and actually talking about finding something that was not like a, a rotted old wooden ship, but was like a, a hollowed-out metallic hull, which clearly wouldn't have been an old wooden ark. They said, you know, they didn't find anything like advanced machinery or technology inside, but they said it was, it was just literally like an empty shell, but metal. You know, so that's true. Then it clearly takes it out of way out the ballpark. And, mm. um, you know, so that's one example. But I'll be the first to admit, you know, the, the you know, I said the more sensational, the more intriguing stuff, we've got fragments of the stories. But I'm encouraged that, you know, at least we've got some of the files because if, if there was no files, that would be a problem. The fact that we've got some that do verify parts of the story, it suggests we've got a foot in the door at least. So we uh, we move uh, now from Mount Ararat in uh, modern-day Turkey to uh, Egypt. And, of course, when we talk about Egypt, we obviously want to talk about the Great Pyramids. And the prevailing wisdom here is that they were uh, constructed, you know, uh, huge slabs of, of stone, uh, you know, quarried with copper chisels and, and, and dragged uh, using, uh, I don't know, uh, ropes and chains, or, or not rope chains, but, uh, yeah. uh, you know, ropes and ramps and, and, and levers and so forth. Uh, but there's some ancient legends, I guess, suggesting some other technology may have been, advanced technology may have been used, and the Pentagon got wind of this, and and all of a sudden, they're interested in it. What, so what's yep. the story behind the Pentagon's uh, theory or, or um, uh, these documents which suggest the pyramids may have been constructed via levitation? Yeah, I mean, it's not just um, the pyramids. I mean, you can look at, for example, ancient Rome, Greece, the pyramids of Egypt, pyramids of South, Af- excuse me, South America, Central America, Stonehenge. They all have legends attached to them, you know, even though they're separated by continents and thousands of miles, and in some cases, centuries. And, um, but they all have legends attached to them that the stones are supposedly lifted by uh, what they describe then as sort of like, you know, magical means. But today, you know, we would view as something like anti-gravity or levitation. Um, And one of the people who spoke about this was a man named Abu al-Hassan Ali al-Masudi, which is a bit of a mouthful, but um, he was a prolific 10th century writer born in Baghdad in uh, 896 AD. And he chronicled um, this sort of an immense um, 30-volume series of texts that basically told the history of the world and all his travels around India, East Africa, Egypt, Syria, Armenia. And it talks in there about how he'd uncovered some very ancient Arabic stories about how supposedly the pyramids had reportedly really been built. And it's a very intriguing story where it talks about these sort of large rods of iron that would they, that the ancients would use, um, like a rod of metal, and they would strike the stone and they would rise slowly into the air and kind of rock like a, like a small boat, you know, on a river or whatever. And they would be prodded and pushed, and they would sort of gently move like five feet above the ground along these corridors in the desert, which are all surrounded by these similar rods. Um, and it almost sounds like this sort of magnetic levitation technology that, you know, that some of the 
more advanced trains in uh, passenger trains in Japan that they use. You know, they're sort of what they call these maglev um, technology. Right, you know, where right. It doesn't actually sit on the track. It actually sounds very much like that. You know, they're talking about them raising them higher, pushing them into place without the need for brute force, you know, ropes, rollers, manpower, etc. And what's interesting is that many of these ancient cultures talk about... Now, when I say this at first, it's going to sound weird, but they talk about the stones being lifted either to the sound of music, tunes, musical instruments, and sound. Um, And, you know, that sounds bizarre until you realize that today's military is heavily researching this. Basically, Basically, the idea is what they call acoustic technology. Now... The way this works is, is the idea that um, highly amplified and directed, directed acoustics, the military has been able to demonstrate you can actually lift um, sort of small objects within the wave. It's basically you have two opposing sound frequencies with what are called interfering sound waves, and it creates what's called a resonant zone that allows you to control what's in that zone and lift it. Not the kind of technology that was readily available during the fourth well, dynasty of it ancient Egypt. Have been. No, that's the whole point. It should not have been. But when you hear all these cultures around the world saying that the, the, the stones were raised by music, by sound, by noise, that sounds what the, like, very much like what the military is doing today with this rudimentary acoustic technology to, to levitate objects. Now, of course, the big question is if that's true and that this applies to these stories about the Egyptian pyramids as well being lifted up, you know, the stones lifted up with this magical rod of iron, and these maglev-type technologies, then you have to ask the next question, well, where on earth or off it did this technology come from? Um, was it extraterrestrial? Or was it, as some researchers believe, you know, could there have been ancient civilizations, perhaps as advanced as us in many ways, but in other ways, advanced in very different ways, so that, you know, there wasn't much left, or there isn't much left of their ancient cultures in terms of computers or 747s or anything equivalent of that, but maybe they advanced in a very different way and developed highly alternative technologies to us, but they, in many ways, were far more advanced in what they could achieve. I mean, you know, the biggest stone-carved block in the world, a place called Baalbek, um, that weighs in at just around 1,000 tons. You know, that cannot be shifted and put into place today. You know, but, 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 it, was, but it was constructed. You know, you can Google it and see it. Um, so, you know, the other theory is that maybe it wasn't alien technology. Maybe there was, you know, in the vast distant past, who knows, 50,000, 60,000 years ago, which goes against all conventional wisdom, but maybe there was an advanced culture and some of their you know, their secrets got passed down, and although they're lost today, maybe they existed, you know, at the time, you know, five, ten thousand years ago, and, you know, we perceived them as being built in some other fashion, and now the technology really has been lost, and it's just been relegated to sort of folklore and mythology. All right, we'll pick that up on uh, the other side with Nick Redfern discussing the pyramids in the Pentagon here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away.
evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Welcome back, friends. Nick Redfern stays with us. His latest, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, it's a good one. The government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. And uh, we're talking right now about the Pentagon documents uh, pertaining to the Egyptian pyramids uh, and uh, an investigation into the possibility that they were actually constructed uh, via levitation. So what did these Pentagon documents uh, reveal to you, Nick? Well, basically, Richard, it's kind of parallels quite eerily the situation with the Noah's Ark story in the same way that, you know, with Noah's Ark, the government was watching people who were saying it was a UFO. The government opened files, or I should say the, the military opened files on people who were researching and write, writing about this whole idea of levitation and the pyramids. One of them uh, was a guy named Maurice Jessup, who was a researcher um, who wrote a number of books on UFOs in the 1950s. Um, but as well as being interested in UFOs, he was also deeply interested in the mysteries of the past and actually traveled to Central and South America, Mexico, looking into a lot of ancient stone structures and coming back absolutely convinced they were built with some sort of ancient levitation technology. Now, what was interesting is that even I mean, Jessup didn't even have to approach the military. They started opening files on him. Actually, and in some cases where they do it clandestinely, you know, and even the research or the author doesn't know, they actually invited um, Jessup out to D.C. and paid for his flight, his hotel room, and intensively grilled him about his book, The Case for the UFO, for two reasons. One, because he discussed extensively this whole anti-gravity levitation technology in the hands of the ancients, and the Navy had been sent uh, an anonymous copy of the book with all sorts of annotations inside it relative to the so-called Philadelphia experiment, the legend of this reportedly vanishing ship from the Second World War. Um, but what was actually interesting is that the guys in, in the Navy who um, invited Jessup out were actually ad, uh, attached to an advanced weapons and technology research program. And they were deeply interested by the theories that he had that, you know, the ancients did have access to some sort of technology, regardless of, you know, was it alien, was it from somewhere on the earth, you know, thousands of years ago. Nobody seemed to know. But Jessup was, as far as I can tell at least, the first one who they opened files on. And he wrote about this extensively. Now, if it had been a one-off, you could just say, well, you know, maybe just a couple of guys in the military who were interested in their personal free time. That was clearly not the case. And that angle is also reinforced by the fact that in the 1960s, and a New Zealand researcher named Bruce Cathy, he was also the subject of files and uh, <clears throat> excuse me, correspondence where, again, it was clear that the military was interested in his books. He wrote a number of books, most famous one called Harmonic 33, which again addressed this idea that in the ancient past, UFOs, if you like flew around the earth using what was basically like a grid system, he, he postulated, and that it was this same grid, if you like, that allowed, not a literal physical grid, but kind of like in the air, you know, it would be like a, an equivalent like the New York subway system, but it was just sort of levels or lines of energy along which UFOs and these stones could be moved. And they opened files on him. 
and a number of other authors as well who'd written about this angle were also the subject of files. So basically what it was that I think the military was deeply interested in this anti-gravity angle, but because it was so far in the distant past, they took an approach that you necessarily wouldn't think they'd always do. You know, you'd imagine they'd always be out looking for these things, but what they did was to monitor the public work of people who were researching this angle and then take their inspiration and leads and names and data from that and then take it to the next level, you know, which is kind of... We don't always expect the government, you know, to sort of follow the lead of authors and see what they're saying for their information, but, but that's exactly what was going on here, you know. It was, well, if, if this is thousands of years ago, but it sounds like a technology we could make use of, how are we going to find it? Well, let's see what the people in the paranormal community are saying and... You know, we'll, we'll take the lead from them. So. Well, it's interesting that uh, during the 1950s, I believe both the British uh, Defense Department and the U.S. Defense Department were both boasting, uh, even in the media, that, that uh, they were very close to developing some sort of anti-gravitic uh, device. And then, yeah. all of a sudden, late 1950s, there was like a complete blackout, and nothing was ever said about that again. Do you think there may be a connection? Yeah, I do. I mean, that, that's actually, that's absolutely 100% true, that you can look back at the historical record now and find newspapers and magazine articles, aviation periodicals, you know, where they're talking about the military coming very close to developing, like, an anti-gravity technology, and that, you know, they were talking about how it would revolutionize the world, etc., etc. What's interesting is that all this was in the period of sort of 56, you know, 57, 58, which was at the height of when Maurice Jessup was doing his research and when he was flown out by the Navy to talk to these guys from this advanced weapons and technology project. There you go. So, Listen, I'm sorry, i got to jump in here. Nick, i got the music coming up, so uh, we'll, we'll uh, break away when we come back. We'll, we'll finish up on that, and then we have to get into one of the, I think, one of the strangest chapters uh, in your book, one of the strangest sections, and this has to do with dimension hopping with the military. Uh, a bizarre story of uh, of the U.S. military perhaps going over to the Middle East to capture genies, or what they, they refer to as the jinn. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show and Nick Redfern. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. The strange findings the government doesn't want you to know about. Nick Redfern is here, and this is a a rich vein to be mined for sure. So, uh, and obviously, uh, only time here to scratch the surface, so you'll want to go out and get a copy of The Pyramids and the Pentagon. The government's top-secret pursuit of mystical relics, ancient astronauts, and lost civilizations. That's Nick Redfern's latest. And uh, we've been talking about uh, the Pentagon's investigation into claims the Egyptian pyramids were constructed via levitation. I mean, we could probably, you know, go on and on at length and talk about uh, that. I mean, I'd love to get into a discussion about, you know, whether or not the, the Pentagon or the CIA were perhaps investigating... Uh, that uh, Latvian American eccentric down in in uh, in Florida who constructed the Coral Castle, and some suggested that those huge um, 
megalithic uh, stones, uh, limestone formed from coral. They each weighed several tons. Perhaps he used the same type of technology, uh, it has been speculated, to move those around. Um, well, yeah, I mean, you, you, you know, wherever you look around the world, there are you know, anomalies involving vast stones and big questions as to how they were moved, you know, and, and you know, that, that, that's a classic case because it demonstrates that, you know, it's not necessarily always in the distant past, you know. So. Indeed. Uh, one of the uh, the frequent con- contributors to this program is uh, paranormal researcher Rosemary Ellen Guiley. I know that, that you know uh, Rosemary. And uh, she's written extensively and researched exen- extensively about the djinn, uh, D-J-I-N-N, not uh, the kind that comes in a bottle. <laughs> Although, well, actually, that's not true. Some do come in a bottle. <laughs> Both varieties come in a bottle. Uh, but uh, genies, we call them here in, in the West, uh, these are supposedly interdimensional uh, entities, not particularly well-mannered, from what I gather. Um, and lo and behold, I see this section in your book, The, T- the Pyramids in the Pentagon, uh, that suggests the military, the U.S. military, may have actually tried to capture one of these things. Is that true, Nick? Well, this is a very weird story. I mean, there are a number of stories like this in circulation. I actually got a very similar one to this when I was researching an earlier book called Final Events, where the military was obsessed with jinns. Um, and for people who aren't aware of it, you know, basically, jinns are sort of the Middle Eastern equivalent of sort of, I guess, you know, demonic entities in some, in some cultures or goblins, you know, and trolls. They're sort of perceived as sort of creatures that can be benevolent, but if you sort of cross their path, they can be malevolent as well. And they sort of live in, you know, sort of twilight ethereal realms that kind of coexist alongside ours, you know. So in other words, the term jinn, one person's jinn in one part of the world 2,000 years ago, you know, is another person's goblin or, or pixie, you know, in 15th, 15th century England. You know, it's kind of like that sort of thing, or a sprite or a hobgoblin. Shadow sort of people. Thing. Yeah, exactly. But what it all comes down to is that these entities are perceived as being creatures that can sort of flit in and out of our reality. And if they do that, well, you know, it's obviously not by using the simplistic terms like magic or something like that. Obviously, there's a there's some issue at work that allows this to happen. And this is one of the areas that the government looked into. Also, the idea of so-called stargates, you know, of sort of leaping from one realm to another. Um, and this is, you know, this is something I talk about in the book, this angle that the military was sort of consulting ancient texts and, you know, mythologies and folklore, etc., to try and determine if it really was just mythology or folklore, or if there were sort of portals using some advanced technology to other realms of existence and mm-hmm. dimensions. And, of course, you know, if somebody got hold of that, that would be an incredible technology, you know, from a military perspective. And there are stories about supposedly trying to capture these things and, you know, um, I mean, how you would do that, that's an entirely different thing. And granted, you know, we only know snippets of the story, but... You know, there, there are a number of stories like this that have come from various sources over the years about, you know, trying to capture these entities. Now, of course, if that's happened, we haven't been told about it. But certainly in the latter part, or excuse me, in the middle part of this, uh, this decade, a number of surf- stories surfaced from different sources all about sort of mi- attempts in the Middle East 
to to capture, you know, for want of a better term, gin, or you know, sort of equally benevolent uh, or malevolent, I should say, um, creatures that become known as like elementals, you know, that sort of exist in some magical realm, if you like. But and it was specifically the military that was supposedly trying to entrap them. Any documentation that you found? No, I mean that's the thing. You know, there's there's where where possible, I always try and get verification and additional sources. Doc, uh, you know, freedom information. This is one of these stories that, you know, as I point out, it's a take it or leave it one in the sense that the story's been told, but nothing has surfaced at all, you know, officially on this. It's 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 purely sort of word of mouth, and you know, but but I point out in the book where stories are word of mouth, or where they're from deep throat whistleblower sources, or whether they're from Freedom of Information Act, or a combination, you know, because it's important to, you know, get across to people the different varying levels of how the data serviced, I think. When you're investigating and researching this book, and you are contacting uh, former CIA agents or, 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 or spokespeople, how do they react? Do their... Is there a defense sort of a mechanism that goes up? Do they do they try and laugh it off? Are they embarrassed uh, that you know that uh, they've been caught sort of investigating this stuff? How do they handle it? Well, you know, I mean, that's an interesting question. It's one I've never actually been asked before. But I mean, I can give you, I can give you an answer. Um, you know, what very often happens is that you know the initial impetus will be people coming to me. You know, they'll say, you know, hey, I read your last book or whatever, and wanted to tell you something about my time in the service, because I know something that was related to that. And so very often they're being quite forthright, but then they might say, well, you know, here's seven names of people I work with, so you track them down, and when you phone them, sometimes, you know, you get a, you do get a combination of, oh, well, yeah, I've been waiting for somebody to tell, tell this story too. Others are, well, who are you, why are you contacting me? You know, and they're, they're actually fearful. I've actually had a couple of occasions, not many, but just a couple, where the person has thought it's somebody in the government who's been trying to track them down and encouraging, he's encouraged phoning them because they don't want them to talk. You know, I had to convince them it was the exact opposite. Other times, you know, people have just said, no, you've got the wrong person. And then after a while, you know, I found back and said, well, I know I haven't got the wrong person, you know, but if you don't want to talk, is that what you say? And they're like, yeah, I don't want to talk. Um, when you're using freedom of information, you know, that's very much more sort of bureaucratic. You know, they don't sort of enter into debate and conversation as such. It's more, thank you for your request. You know, it'll be processed within 90 days. And if there's any material, be forwarded. And if there isn't, we'll, we'll tell you, you know, that the search came up a negative response. So, you know, it's not like you kind of, you know, they phone you up and say, Hey, dude, you know, this is cool, you know. <laughs> right, like right. That, so. Well, I, I asked that because a few years ago you wrote, uh, you know, The Real Men in Black, yeah. uh, people that have been uh, visited by these mysterious uh, individuals uh, after, you know, claiming to see a UFO and going public about it. I'm just wondering whether you ever got a sense that maybe you got a little too close to something you shouldn't have and maybe you got a visit from someone. Oh, I see. Um, I've never had a visit or anything like that, but what I have had is a lot of very weird telephone interference. And what's interesting is that the telephone interference has occurred when I've been doing interviews, and I actually bring that issue up. It's almost as if, you know, someone's listening in, and it's like an attempt at intimidation, you know, to say, hey, just to let you know we're listening, you know. And 
that is one of the typical aspects of the Men in Black mystery is that, you know, it's not just people get that sort of slow banging on the front door at midnight. You know, they pick up the phone and there's like this weird chattering or electronic voices in some strange language or, you know, just screeches and electronic noises. Um, and, you know, in today's world, it's not like the Hollywood movies, you know, where they have to tap the, keep the person on the line for 10 minutes to trace them and everything. You know, those days are gone. And the days of hearing clicks on the phone are gone as well. So if this is being done, and I think it is, because a number of people reported very similar things to me, it's being done deliberately, you know, to, and it's being done to, like a psychological thing, to let you know someone's listening. And, and I think government agencies prefer to do that, you know, than outwardly threaten people, because if you, if you sort of stay in the background and listen, you have a better chance of just carefully, you know, monitoring the entire situation. You sort of, if the government plays its hand and, you know, takes action, people clam up. If they're not really sure anybody's listening, that's actually to the government's advantage to sort of play, you know, that sort of um, careful approach, if you like. I'm smiling as, as you're describing this, uh, you know, this phenomenon of, of, of uh, strange telephone interference. I, uh, it's starting to, you're starting to connect some dots for me. A couple of weeks ago, I was uh, on the road doing the show at a remote location. I was in Saskatchewan interviewing a 9-11 researcher, Jim Fetzer, also a JFK uh, uh, researcher of some renown. And that, uh, Dave Gaskin will uh, agree, I mean, that was a, that, that from beginning to end, we had nothing but technical uh, difficulties that night. And given that the, the, uh, the nature of the, uh, the subject matter, maybe that's what was going on. Maybe uh, there were certain things being divulged that certain people didn't want divulged. Nick Redfern is with us. The book, The Pyramids and the Pentagon, The Government's Top Secret Pursuit of Mystical Relics, Ancient Astronauts and Lost Civilizations. We just have a couple of minutes. Um, I just wanted to mention, you, you brought up the Stargate. Uh, and, uh, you know, interdimensional uh, uh, travel and so forth. And, of course, the military would be interested in getting their hands on a piece of equipment like that. There was some suggestion that that may have been the real motivation uh, for the Gulf War One. That and, and around that time, I seem to recall that uh, Saddam Hussein had brought in some German archaeologists uh, to dig in the, uh, the, the sands, uh, in the deserts in Iraq, uh, and then some uh, suggested that's what he was looking for. He was looking for that Stargate, uh, and the um, you know the the uh, the um, the American forces and their their um, their allies. The I guess it was called the Force of the Willing or whatever it was. Uh, they were look, they were trying to get there and get that Stargate first. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stories linked with with both Gulf Wars about you know the people who ruled in the area looking for ancient technologies, and you know that part of the missions for going in there was to see what could be found. And I mean, a classic example with the you know the the latest Gulf War is that when you know the Iraq was at a tight in turmoil, the Baghdad Museum was looted, which contained a lot of priceless artifacts, ancient manuscripts, and various things that a number of researchers suggested sort of told stories of, you know, sort of ancient issues and mysteries that government agencies might want to get their hands on. And what's interesting is that when an investigation, a U.S. military investigation was undertaken, it demonstrated that far from being just sort of random looting, you know, by people in the city who were just, you know, just out of control and just grabbing stuff, it seemed that certain parts of the lower levels of the museum had been deliberately targeted and specific items were taken that were sort of priceless 
that told ancient stories, you know, of, of Iraq and um, some of these legendary, legendary ancient kings who supposedly possessed magical powers and things like this. You know, and when you hear that and you realize that that part of the story is legitimate, it does sound like, you know, somebody was actually targeting and pinpointing certain things um, and possibly even using the war as like a, you know, a as cover. As a cover. There you go. Well, now, Nick, who it was, that's the big question. Exactly. Well, I'll leave it to you because no one else I, I could imagine could get to the bottom of it, but Nick Redfern will, and perhaps the answer will be revealed in your next book. But uh, uh, congratulations on the pyramids and the Pentagon. It's a good one, Nick. Thank you for joining me. Thanks a lot, Richard. All right. Oh, wait, well, I really uh, appreciate uh, Nick stopping by. Fantastic, fantastic read, The Pyramids in the Pentagon. Hey, you can read all about Nick and uh, other uh, guests on the show. Check out our website, www.richardserrett.com. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the uh, the program. Good to have you with us. And I uh, just wanted to uh, once again welcome our new affiliate to the uh, Conspiracy Show family, if you will. And uh, say hello to the folks down at AM 1350 WZGM Asheville, North Carolina. Of course, up here we say WZGM, uh, but there it'll be WZGM, Asheville, North Carolina. That's AM 1350. Welcome aboard. I drove, um, if not through Asheville, uh, I was in close proximity to Asheville, uh, North Carolina, uh, I guess about a year ago while we were in production on uh, season two of The Conspiracy Show. And one of the most thrilling drives of my life going through the mountains in North Carolina. It was a particularly foggy night and a lot of hairpin turns. And uh, I was uh, at the helm. I believe my director was uh, um, 
he was uh, riding shotgun, as they say, and he was, uh, you, you know, his feet were doing that imaginary braking. Uh, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a little bit nerve-wracking, uh, but uh, somewhat uh, tempered by the uh, the natural beauty. Uh, even at night, it was just uh, spectacular. Uh, I can't. I wish I could remember the name of that particular highway. I want to say high, uh, Highway Forty One or something like that. But absolutely gorgeous. I got to get down there again. And um, perhaps drop by and say hello to uh, the people down there at WZGM, Asheville, North Carolina. Welcome. Wow, quite a stir, quite a stir in the the UFO community after a former senior CIA official has stated publicly, basically what he said in 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 a nutshell is everything you've heard about Roswell and the supposed crash of an alien vessel is true, including the recovery of alien cadavers. Yes, this is coming from a former CIA official who liaisoned with the entertainment industry. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but we're about to find out. And whenever we uh, delve into uh, uh, matters of... uh, Uh, UFOs or extraterrestrials, of course. I recruit my good friend who sits opposite me tonight, Victor Vigiani, the, of course, executive director of Z-Land News Network, who sat in for me a week ago. And thank you for that, Victor. Welcome. Great to be back again. My goodness, what a treat to uh, begin delving into this intrigue that we're looking at. It is filled with absolute intrigue this evening, Richard. And uh, we've also uh, uh, recruited for our little panel tonight, Robbie Graham. He's been with us before. He's a a doctoral candidate at the University of Bristol for a PhD examining Hollywood's historical representations of UFOs. Now, there's a thesis I can't wait to read. My word, what a fascinating area. Uh, um, Again, uh, historical representations of UFOs and potential extraterrestrial life. As a freelance writer and lecturer, his work emphasizes the industrial, cultural, and political processes by which Hollywood's UFO movie content is shaped, as well as the impact of these movies on popular perceptions of the UFO phenomenon. Well, that now I'm starting to understand what a entertainment liaison uh, might do for the CIA. We're also, oh, let me say first hello. Hello to Robbie Graham. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm wonderful. Thank you. You're uh, in the UK, and so it's very early in the morning. You're a terrific sport getting up, uh, getting up at this hour. Thank you. No problem. My pleasure. We're also joined by Grant Cameron, who became involved in ufology as the Vietnam War ended in May 75 with a personal sighting of an object which locally became known as Charlie Red Star. Uh, But of course, uh, in uh, later years, he's uh, turned his research interests to the involvement and actions of the presidents of the United States in the UFO problem. He's made 25-plus trips to the National Archives and most of the various presidential archives looking for presidential UFO material. Grant Cameron, good to have you aboard. Welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Well, thanks for having me on, Victor. Uh, it's uh, Richard. Victor's, uh, Victor's uh, sitting uh, opposite me here in studio as well. Uh, thank you all. So let me begin by asking you, uh, let's find out a little bit about this official in question. Charles Chase Brandon, the CIA's former liaison to the entertainment industry. Um, why don't we begin with Victor in studio? First of all, what is uh, a, a liaison 
to the entertainment industry from the CIA's perspective? What would that person be in, responsible for? Well, some of the things that I know that individuals like Chase Brandon did do uh, was they would consult with different uh, movie directors, film corporations, etc. And what they would do is review scripts, review uh, different types of equipment and personnel that would be on site on any given on any given uh, you know film venture by a Hollywood, uh, be it Disney or whatever, and they would sort of quote unquote uh, uh, consult with uh, things like uh, different you know symbols on on UFOs, different kinds of script things that would be uh, stated by individuals that would be you know it, within the script. So they would sanction some of the things that would be uh, okay to say and okay not to say or not okay to say on on uh, during the film. So they would vet a lot of the scripts, and in some cases we have information that the CIA um, more or less nudged, wink, wink, uh, different uh, directors or writers to rewrite certain parts of the script so that it would fall more in line with the CIA support of these of these particular films. And these films were supported in many different ways with equipment, uh, information, and different kinds of training procedures that would uh, be proffered to the public as to how the CIA would be involved in their own work plus um, controlling what the public would come to understand about any given UFO film that dealt, that dealt with extraterrestrials. Uh, uh, Robbie Graham, uh, this is exactly, you know, sort of the, the nature of your research, is it not? That uh, trying to find out what sort of influence uh, in these uh, alphabet uh, intelligence organizations exerted in Hollywood in shaping the UFO message, correct? Yeah, that's certainly a big part of my research. Um, it, my research is split between the cultural and the political. Um, so I look at the natural cultural process that goes on uh, in, in the shaping of popular perceptions of the UFO phenomenon. Uh, but at the same time, I also look at the political and corporate influences uh, in that process as well. And uh, the CIA plays heavily into that, as, as does the Department of Defense. But Victor really summed it up quite perfectly there in terms of what the CIA does and has done historically. Uh, in Hollywood over the years. The liaison office for Hollywood um, with the CIA wasn't established until 1995-96. That was the point at which the CIA officially became involved in Hollywood. Prior to that, they they really claimed no involvement at all, but uh, documents uh, released over the decades uh, do show that the CIA has been covertly influencing uh, scripts uh, as, as early as 1953 uh, and, and prior to that as well. Now, Charles Chase Brandon, the CIA's former liaison to the, to the entertainment industry, uh, publicly stated recently, quote, I was absolutely, um, or it is known as I sit here, it is, one, it is absolutely 100% true as I sit here talking to you that there was a craft from beyond this world that cra- crashed at Roswell that the military picked up remains of not just the wreck- wreckage but cadavers. This is what Charles Chase Brandon has said. Is, is, is he someone um, that you're familiar with uh, prior to this statement? Has his name come up in your research previously, Robbie? Yes, it has. And in fact, anyone who's ever conducted any uh, uh, serious research into Hollywood propaganda and government involvement in Hollywood will have come across Chase Brandon's name. And in fact, anyone who's worked in Hollywood um, uh, for any amount of time, really, uh, who has ever liaised with Central Intelligence Agency, 
will have uh, come across Brandon Jay, will met him personally. Uh, he's, he's a known figure in Hollywood. Uh, he occupied the position of entertainment liaison officer uh, with the CIA for a, a, around a decade, from sort of 1996 to around 2007, late 2006. Uh, and yeah, he in that role, he, he made contact with all of the movement shakers in Tinseltown. He um, he made that his business, and uh, uh, yeah, the the, the official uh, capacity there was was that he was uh, trying to encourage a more favourable representation of the CIA in Hollywood, and trying to, in the CIA's word, educate filmmakers uh, and artists about what the CIA does. Uh, in an effort to encourage more positive portrayals of the agency, because prior to the CIA's official involvement in Hollywood, of course, the CIA typically has been negatively portrayed on screen as a uh, you know, as a dark, secretive uh, force uh, of malevolence, um, and it's uh, the CIA sort of grew tired of this and they felt that in order to boost recruitment and retention of personnel, uh, they needed to take an active role, uh, or, or should we say? an open and more overt role uh, in Hollywood and uh, they decided to, in their own words, come out of the shadows and uh, share some of what they do with, uh, with the entertainment industry uh, in order to, as I say, impose a more positive trail of the, of, the, uh, of the agency. So so that's what they've been doing officially uh, for well, since 1996. But um, again, those mountains of evidence, uh, I mean, very concrete evidence, uh, which shows that since at least 1953, since in a very big way, the agency was involved in Hollywood, um, but this was in a covert capacity, and you had uh, operatives infiltrating studios, uh, liaising very closely with studio heads, with actors, with directors, with producers, uh, tweaking scripts, uh, having films funded, um, having films censored, and so yeah, it was a very pervasive influence um, throughout the Cold War. Let me get uh, Grant Cameron in here, and then uh, we'll um, I'll turn uh, things over to Victor for a moment. But uh, but Grant, what is the? Well, let me just ask you straight out: What do you make of this uh, statement by Charles Chase Brandon? It's caused quite a stir. I mean, are uh, is this is this a as big a deal as everyone seems to be making? Uh, he he certainly is a a, a guy who claims uh, you know to be the CIA guy, and he is uh, who he claims he is. Uh, the, there's no doubt that the, the CIA has greenlighted something that, um, if you're a CIA agent, you don't just go on to national radio and, um, talk about stuff that hasn't been approved beforehand. So my, my interest in the whole story is what exactly is going on? Because as you know, the CIA official position is, uh, they are not involved in UFOs. So to have one of their agents step forward and say, not only are they into UFOs, but uh, it's extraterrestrial, and I saw what he's calling the Roswell box at Langley, uh, has put the CIA into a real sort of uh, catch-22. And Robbie uh, drafted a letter. I had part of access or signed to this letter, a letter to the CIA, and the CIA has said that they will uh, respond to what Chase Brandon has said. So the important thing comes now is, uh, did the CIA talk to Chase after, because he made this statement two weeks ago, 
and now he's been quoted again today by the Huffington Post uh, actually extending these statements and making new statements uh, backing up what he originally said so the whole question is uh, how does the CIA deal with this and what exactly is going on I cannot believe that the CIA is not playing a part in this. All right, let me just uh, jump in here. Sorry, uh, Grant, we've got a breakaway. I've got the music uh, okay. coming up in behind us, but uh, when we'll uh, we'll get back, we'll find out exactly what did Chase uh, Brandon, former CIA liaison to the ent- entertainment industry, say about Roswell and the UFO crash, which happened in 1947, about this time, uh, 65 years ago. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. The truth will set you free, but first, it'll really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. I was just on a Google map. I actually surprised myself. I was, I was right. I was trying to uh, recall a, a trip through North Carolina as we welcome a, 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 our first affiliate to the program, WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina. And it is U.S. Route 41 that winds through the Smoky Mountains, which is one of the most spectacular drives in the continental United States I've ever taken, uh, but I'm not sure if Asheville is along US 41. If any of our listeners know, would love to hear from you. Shoot me an email or uh, give us a call. In any event, uh, on to other matters, and uh, what other matters? My word. Um, about 65 years ago, in and around this week, give or take, we had uh, the crash of something uh, not too far from Roswell, New Mexico. Some say it was a weather balloon. Others say it was a craft of extraterrestrial origin. And now we have a former senior CIA official who is known as a liaison to the entertainment industry, Chase Brandon, saying, again, that 100%, absolutely, I know as I sit here talking to you that there was a craft from beyond this world that crashed at Roswell that the military picked up remains of not just the wreckage, but cadavers. Victor Vigiani, Executive Director of Zeland News Network, longtime Canadian ufologist, is with us. Robbie Graham, uh, we've now got him on the, uh, the phone uh, from the UK, uh, doctoral candidate at the University of Bristol for a PhD examining Hollywood's historical representations of UFOs and potential extraterrestrial life, and another uh, celebrated Canadian UFO researcher, Grant Cameron, uh, his website is www.presidentialufo.com. Okay, so let's examine in a little more detail what Chase Brandon actually said. Uh, Victor, uh, fill us in. Well, basically, he indicated that um, with 100% certainty, and these are his words, I'm sort of reflecting on his words again, with 100% certainty, he, he could uh, verify that the craft that crashed 65 years ago just outside of Roswell near Corona, New Mexico, was in fact a craft of off-world origin. That was one thing that he said for sure, that he said, absolutely, I know that. He said, absolutely, I know. So that's one thing that he said. The other thing that he said was that he visited the, um, uh, what they call the HIC, the Historical Intelligence Collection, I believe it's in Langley, uh, Yes, I believe that's true. That's right. And he saw items in a box labeled Roswell materials, materials from the Roswell crash, be it uh, items, papers, and documents that attested to um, uh, the verification of the crash itself. 
Now, uh, he stated this on national radio and unequivocally stated it and apparently has made more statements about it subsequently to another um, writer in the, the Huffington Post. Now, what I, what I would like to clarify about all of this is that um, both Robbie and, uh, and Grant have sort of uh, been exposed to the information. And w- what I want to clarify is if Brandon's comments were subject to official approval, and, and if he was speaking the truth, then this might indicate that the CIA is in some way using him to work what the agency calls a limited hangout. What does that mean? Well, that's what I want to ask Robbie. Robbie, take that over for me, please. Robbie Graham, limited hangout. What does that mean? Well, a, uh, a limited hangout is a, tactic, well, it's a, a term that's used by uh, the CIA, uh, and it's, uh, it, it indicates that there's a limited disclosure, shall we say, of um, of information, uh, the release of, of information, uh, truthful information, factual information about a sensitive issue. Um, this is released in a controlled way uh, by a source who uh, the CIA or, or the uh, relative agency feels that the public can trust. And the information is released um, in order to prevent the... Uh, greater release or the further release of, of more damaging information so it's it's sort of you sort of you know you can have this information uh, but you can't have what else we've got because that would be too damaging and hopefully the release of this small piece of information will be so distracting and so amazing to you that you won't seek further uh, you won't seek further information on it so a controlled uh, leak a controlled leak you. it's a controlled leak it's kind of showing you a shiny penny in order to distract you away from uh, you know, from the darker stuff. Yes, well, we are magpies. We are mollified by shining objects. That's been borne out many times. My question to Grant Cameron would be, why should we believe uh, a Chase Brandon, given that his former role was to essentially manipulate, uh, massage the message coming out of Hollywood? How do we know he's not just doing the, pulling the same number on us? Well, we don't. That's the that's the whole point of the thing. What we do know is that uh, that the CIA will have some interaction in what's going on here. Uh, you got to remember that uh, this is not the first time it's happened. I, I, in fact, I'm releasing an article on my website tomorrow that's going to talk about how the CIA has done this over the last 30 years. And if you recall back, this is the 65th anniversary of Roswell. If you remember, at the 50th anniversary of Roswell, uh, Philip Corso came forward just the, almost exactly the same timing with a, an incredible tale about Roswell. And I think that's what's going to happen here. You're going. Uh, Brandon is who he says he is. He's a legitimate guy. But I think what you're going to find is this limited sort of hangout thing that what is going to happen is the CIA is going to come back and they're going to throw the whole case into Stanton Friedman's gray basket. They're going to say, uh, we've, we've heard the story. We can't find the documents, which leads us to a position where we can't really say for sure whether Brandon's story is true or whether it's not true, but the whole idea that the CIA was involved and that Roswell is real gets out there, and that's what they want to do. It's really irrelevant um, what Brandon is saying. It's what's actually going on behind the scenes. Uh, the fact that the CIA has to ha- have proved this, they have to be involved in this, and Robbie and I spent almost all day today exchanging emails back and forth trying to figure out what exactly is going on, what, what is going on behind the scenes. This means something more than just some guy coming out and tell, telling a tale because the CIA has done this a number of times, but they always pull it back 
so that there's no concrete evidence because there's concrete evidence and the Washington Post and New York Times suddenly realize they've been had. There's going to be a feeding frenzy at the CIA and this is what they're trying to control. They don't want it completely disclosed, but they want the information dropped general, uh, slowly to the public. To the public. In other words, it sounds like you're saying, uh, Grant and Robbie and Victor, that 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 what he's saying is true, uh, but they can only go so far. They're only willing to go so far, and then that they've sort of, I guess, in terms of their legacy, they've let themselves off the hook. They've told us. They've they've told us as much as they can, uh, but told they've also as much g- as they're willing at this stage. Yes. Um, I think that they, obviously they could tell us a, a hell of a lot more. But and it's true. It's what he's saying is true. Is basically, is that what you're getting at? Well, you know, I think that here's my, you know, here's my take on it. Um, it's not so, as Grant just pointed out, it's not so much the, um, the content of Brandon's Roswell statements that's intriguing as why he's actually making these statements in the first place and the possible consequences of him having made these statements. Now, to date, uh, Brandon is the most senior CIA officer, former or serving, and of course Brandon is no longer with the agency officially, to have claimed a direct knowledge of, uh, of an extraterrestrial link to the Roswell incident. Now, um, as, we, as we just pointed out, Brandon was, um, uh, he was the CIA entertainment liaison uh, officer for, for 10 years, but prior to that he worked, well, he, he spent 35 years in the CIA, 25 years of which were in the uh, CIA's um, clandestine service, uh, he worked in uh, counterinsurgency, global narcotics, trafficking, weapon smuggling. He was a presidential advisor to Bill Clinton. His officer joined the uh, DCIs for several years. He's uh, been a paramilitary training instructor, CIA training camps. He's, you know, it goes on and on. He's, he is, uh, you know, he, he, he is who he says he is, as Grant says. He, he uh, you know, when it comes to high-level espionage and international political maneuverings, he is who he says he is, and he... He talks the talk, he walks the walk, he's the real deal. And when someone of Brandon's calibre uh, declares publicly that Roswell happened, I think we can, or at least we're expected, to feel comfortable that our careful consideration of those statements is not entirely unjustified. Now, as I say, at the same time, we should be aware that it's not so much what he said that, that's uh, interesting as it is why he's saying them, uh, why, why he's saying he's, why he's making these statements and the consequences of him having having made them. Um, and what I mean by that is, um, well, first of all, although Brandon was speaking in the context of a promotional interview for his new fictional UFO-themed book, which is called The Crypto's Conundrum, uh, it was unambiguous to anyone who was listening to Coast to Coast uh, that his Roswell comments were voiced not as a matter of opinion, but as a matter of fact. And indeed, he's confirmed that to the Huffington Post. Um, so if he was lying then as lies go, that's, that's a whopper. And it would surely be viewed with extreme disfavor by not only his former colleagues at the CIA, for whom Brandon has, by the way, nothing but the highest of praise, but also his current uh, very high-powered employer, uh, BAE Systems, which is the defense giant. And he works uh, with BAE Systems as the senior intelligence uh, uh, consultant for Spectal, which is the, uh, the intelligence division of BAE Systems. So this is a very, uh, very serious position that he's in right now, uh, in terms of his current employee. Now, so you know, so whilst whilst a savvy marketing uh, ploy for his book might might be the most obvious solution uh, to to Brandon's Roswell statements, it's not necessarily the most logical. 
um, you know, given the nature of his corporate work, it's very hard to believe that he would be so short of money that he's decided to weave this elaborate fantasy that publicly implicates the CIA that he knows and loves in a cover-up so deep and with you know such far-reaching implications that it could, uh, if proven real, end the CIA as we know it, or simply in the hope that his book might sell exceptionally well, and I mean exceptionally well, and earn him in a year probably only half of what he earns in a month through his work for BAE Systems. Now, that's a crazy way to make a penny. So clearly something doesn't add up here. His motivation doesn't appear to be financial, as some have suggested. Uh, it seems to be political. Uh, and you know he's not going to make these kind of statements on a whim, not simply to boost some book sales. It would risk ostracizing him from his uh, his former colleagues at the CIA, with whom I know he still keeps close company, and it would risk making him look like a complete madman and a total loose cannon to his current employers at BAE Systems. So again, I think, from my perspective, it's, it seems at least logical to give consideration to the idea that these statements were officially sanctioned um, and that he's not acting autonomously here and that there is a purpose to what he's saying. So uh, as for um, Brandon speaking the truth about Roswell, well, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. Um, regardless of whether he was speaking the truth, uh, his statements in that interview and his statements to the Huffington Post should, as standard procedure, have been subject to the prior approval by the CIA's Publications Review Board, which is the PRB. What did he see in um, that? Did he? How much did he? Did he say about what he saw in the the Roswell box at Langley? Nothing other than he said he said he saw papers, photographs, and other materials. He said he would not specify the nature of any of those, um, but the strong implication, I believe, was that what he saw in there was presumably photographs of cadavers or of materials. Alien cadavers. Alien cadavers. That's a strong implication. Um, because he actually, he, he says that these were, he says that the craft was not of this world um, and that the cadavers were obviously clearly not of this world either. Well, let me play um, a skeptic here a little bit and, and I'll throw this out to, to Grant and, and Victor. Either of you can jump in on this one. Again, let, let's assume for a moment that the the uh, the military uh, created this cover story uh, 65 years ago because they wanted to, during the you know the Cold War they wanted to uh, protect secrets uh, you know this high uh, altitude surveillance uh, 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 satellite tracking device or whatever this balloon that they were developing and so they created this this uh, alien spacecraft story and that and that's why we had that first uh, uh, you know press release that got out you know spacecraft captured or flying saucer captured at Roswell if that was in fact true it would stand to reason that the US military then would create a number of documents and artifacts in support of that cover story perhaps they're in a box in Langley and that's what Chase Brandon actually saw. Now that's 65 years ago, so why wouldn't he think after stumbling upon this cover story that it wasn't a cover story and that these were actual artifacts? Let me, we'll uh, take a time out and uh, Grant Cameron, Victor Vigiani, you can weigh in on that as well as we continue to discuss the CIA and the Roswell cover up here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740 
To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. You know, it's funny. You have a a former senior CIA official, Brandon, uh, uh, Chase Brandon, Charles Chase Brandon, coming out publicly stating that Ross... Oops, we lost uh, uh, Robbie Graham there in the UK. Well, uh, David Gaskin, my technical producer, will get him back uh, as we continue continue to discuss the CIA and the Roswell cover-up. Uh, Victor Vigiani, exo uh, or uh, executive director of Zealand News Network, and uh, Grant Cameron, uh, Canadian ufologist and uh, the man behind uh, www.presidentialufo.com. Uh, joining me, and we will get Robbie Graham from the UK back as well. But it's interesting, you have a senior CIA uh, official, a liaison to the entertainment industry, saying recently, publicly, uh, loudly, that uh, 100%, with absolute 100% certainty, Roswell happened just the way we've been told 65 years ago. There was a, a an extraterrestrial craft that crashed north of Roswell in July of 1947, and there were alien cadavers recovered from the crash site. You would think given the, the providence of that, <laughs> that there would be a New York Times headline that would rival Dewey Beats Truman. Where is it? We, we don't, we're not seeing that. What does it take? Who has to say this? Who has to say it in order for it to uh, percolate uh, uh, up into the mainstream media or penetrate the, the, the glass ceiling? But before we, maybe Grant Cameron can answer that, but before we, we get to that, Grant, I wanted you to uh, comment on my previous question before the break, and that was, is it possible that that Roswell box full, uh, filled with artifacts uh, was just part of the, the cover-up story? Um, no, because, first of all, the CIA didn't exist when the Roswell uh, incident occurred. They weren't created till a number of months after the Roswell crash. That's one thing. The cover story that you're talking about, and that's why I'm saying... Uh, there's a lot of things here behind the scenes that are suspicious about this incident occurring on 65th anniversary of Roswell because the cover story you're talking about, the Mogul Balloon, that cover story was created in 1990. Uh, 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 the, se- the second part the, the, of the, that came from a Roswell report that Bill Clinton had ordered, and that was in 1997, and that was released, that cover story was released a couple of days before the 50th anniversary of Roswell. So you get all these different events occurring on the anniversaries, major anniversaries of Roswell with either the Air Force coming out with a, with this mogul balloon stuff or with uh, Brandon coming out and talking about this Roswell thing. The, the other reason why you wouldn't expect that this is part of the cover story is that that's not what the CIA wants. The CIA is an intelligence gathering organization. They're not there to make news. They sit in the background and gather material. The last thing they want is their name on the front of the New York Times or the Washington Post having to answer charges. And as I said before, they are on the hook for this thing. They have already told Robbie Graham that they are going to answer uh, Robbie Graham's uh, drafted letter as to uh, explaining what Chase Brandon did on Coast to Coast. So they have to answer, and I know Billy Cox, uh, has uh, a reporter, has 
filed a letter with the CIA, and I'm sure that Lee Spiegel, who wrote the Huffington Post article, has a letter into the CIA, and they are being deluged. They are right now trying to figure out how they're going to handle this, because they've got a CIA guy that is verified CIA, who's on the record now uh, on, on the Huffington Post, which is a major article uh, today, which has over 1,100 Facebook shares. It's, it's 500 comments. It's, it's going viral this article and I know Robbie tried to get the article out and nobody would take it and even the Huffington Post wouldn't take it they were doing their own article and now it started you're one of the few first people and this story has been around for two weeks you're one of the first uh, news agencies that's even picked up on this story so it's been dropped but the CIA is under pressure they've been under pressure for a couple weeks to answer these charges and this is not what they want they don't want to put out cover stories they don't want to put out kind of uh, goofy little stories because they're not there to make news they don't want to be in the news they want to sit in the background and gather stuff so the fact that some guy came out is very important because the CIA had to have known and as I said before he two weeks ago he talked about this now he's come out publicly again there's no doubt because Robbie wrote the letter to the CIA that the CIA would have had to have talked to Chase Brandon in the last two weeks and after they talked to him Chase Brandon comes out again which reinforces the fact that the CIA is playing a major role in whatever is going on here. Okay, Grant, uh, hold on. Robbie Graham has uh, rejoined us from the UK. We'll get him on here. I'd like to uh, find out from Robbie if we can the contents of that letter that he drafted and sent to the CIA. We'll do that. Victor Vigiani from uh, Zealand News Network uh, joins us in studio as well as we continue to discuss the CIA and the Roswell cover-up and this bombshell, a former senior CIA official saying publicly, on the record, everything you've heard about Roswell 65 years ago, an alien spacecraft crashing in the desert, the recovery of alien cadavers, it's all true. All true. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. If this story is true, if we are to believe senior CIA official, former CIA official, uh, Charles Chase Brandon, when he said that everything you've heard about Roswell, 1947, UFO crash, aliens recovered, dead bodies, dead aliens, if, is 100% true. If this is, in fact, true, this should be the biggest story of the last, I don't know, how do you even compare this? The biggest story ever, perhaps. Uh, and yet, many of you tucked into your beds tonight are hearing it for the first time. Why? Ask yourself, why are you hearing it at 12.45 a.m. on an a.m. station? Why are you not hearing it on, on, on CNN? We'll uh, discuss that with uh, Grant Ca uh, Cameron. Robbie Graham, uh, we've uh, joined him on the line from the U.K. Robbie, you drafted a letter, you sent a letter, rather, to the CIA asking for clarification on this? I did, yeah. And what I'd like to do, uh, thanks, Richard, is I'll just quickly read you the questions. I won't read you the full letter. The full letter is three pages long. I'll read you just the, the questions that I put to the CIA. And then is what I'd like to do is just further clarify my position on this whole, on this whole case, on this whole story. So the questions um, put to the CIA in a letter signed by myself, uh, Dr. Matthew Alford, Grant Cameron, and Victor Vigiani were as follows. M number one. Uh, was Mr. Brandon's interview on Coast to Coast AM on 23rd of June 2012, and were the comments he made during this interview subject to prior approval by the CIA's Publications Review Board? Number two, 
Does Mr. Brandon's assertion that the CIA currently has in its possession proof of extraterrestrial visitation, which we stress he claims to have seen while working in his capacity as entertainment liaison officer, constitute a disclosure of classified information? If so, is he subject to legal penalties or other action as a result of this disclosure? If not, why not? Number three, is Mr. Brandon still under contract with the CIA in any capacity? Number four, are there any circumstances under which members of the public, academics or journalists, for example, might be granted limited access to the HIC? In other words, that's the historical, historical intelligence collection where Brandon claims to have seen the material. In other words, is it possible for the public to independently verify Mr. Brandon's claims regarding the Roswell, Roswell materials in the HIC? Number five, as an extension of the above question, what CIA communication policies are in place to provide the public with an opportunity to respond to and inquire about materials observed and statements made by former CIA operatives concerning the Roswell matter that may be seen to communicate classified intelligence or national security information in a public forum. And number six, if avenues for public verification of Mr. Brennan's claims are not available at this time, we ask that the CIA officially comment on his Roswell statements, either confirming or denying their veracity. And then we clarify uh, that uh, these, these questions are posed not in the context of Chase Brandon's fictional book, but in the context of his factual public statement. Um, now, the CIA responded and said that they would look into our inquiries and get back to us, quote, uh, I quote, quickly. That was a week ago. We're still waiting to hear. I'll be contacting them again this week to chase that up. Now, here's my speculative take on all of this, what it's worth, and I'll, I'll make this very quick. So, Brandon, and this is, this is I stress, speculation. So, this is one, one hypothesis. Brandon has made these Roswell statements with official approval. Now, regarding Roswell being a crash and recovery of another worldly craft and, and bodies, uh, he isn't telling us anything we haven't already figured out for ourselves. In fact, he's telling us what we want to hear. And since a lot of people in the UFO community already take for granted that Roswell was real and, 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 and extraterrestrial in nature, those same people, and we're talking about a lot of people here, automatically deem Chase Brandon to be a trustworthy source. He, he establishes his credibility in the public eye. He gains our trust because he's telling us uh, that Roswell is real, which we, which we already kind of know. So at the same time, while making these Roswell uh, uh, revelations, shall we say, uh, Brandon is um, you know, he's subtly absolving the CIA of any ongoing complicity in this active UFO cover-up. What he says in his Coast to Coast interview is that Roswell is essentially dead and buried. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's a crime of the past, not of the present. Don't blame it on, on the current CIA. And this is regardless of whether or not Brandon is actually telling the truth about what he saw in that alleged Roswell box. He may, he may not have seen this box at all. He, you know, he, he might simply be following orders, uh, acting on instructions to deliver certain information to the public in a certain way. Now, that's just step one in what may be a more complex operation. By capturing the world's attention with these you know, Roswell happened statements, what he does is encourages people to read his book. And that's potentially the bigger goal here. And, to, and, and, and not only to read his book, but to read his book as fact disguised as fiction. So although the book is labelled fiction, and in this hypothetical scenario, the C he and the CIA uh, would want uh, people to interpret it as fact based on his, you know, his apparently truthful comments to, to Coast to Coast. And that's the ploy, because his book really is fiction. You know, it's, a, it's a paranoid fantasy written uh, primarily to instill fear and, and, and sow confusion. 
uh, in all those who read it. And the motivation, though, for Brandon's book was not financial because this, he's got very little to gain from it financially uh, on top of what he already makes. But the motivation seems to be political. It's about perception management and disinformation. Brandon's areas of expertise, let's not forget. So my advice would be listen to what he has to say, scrutinize his every word, seek to understand these words, uh, you know, to decipher them. Uh, but then I would say disregard them, let them go, because it's not so much what Brandon is saying about Roswell and UFOs, it's why he's saying it and how he's saying it that's important. So the truth, I would say, here lies in the motivation, not in the content. Victor Vigiani, uh, what does this mean, uh, potentially, for the disclosure movement? You and I have talked uh, right. many, many times on this mm-hmm. program with a noted uh, registered lobbyist in Washington, Stephen Bassett, who's, mm-hmm. uh, who's, uh, t- who's done just about everything he can uh, to get an official uh, statement from the White House, including these petitions and so forth, to acknowledge the UFO uh, presence or the, the ET presence. And uh, really, nothing, very little to show for his, his efforts. What will this single announcement by a senior CIA official do for the disclosure movement. Well, very briefly, and, and going, extending what Robbie just said, okay, it's not what he said and, and why he said it, uh, and well, maybe why, but it's like an asphalt driveway. You know, you've got an asphalt driveway, and there's that one weed at the bottom of the driveway that you keep on popping up through the asphalt. And we know that asphalt's pretty thick. And the way this conspiracy and the cover-up has been handled is a very thick one, but there's still that weed that continues to pop up through the driveway that you just can't kill no matter how much you know, uh, uh, pesticide you put on, it just keeps on popping up. This is like that weed. It's not going to go away. This is a road of no return. Lee Spiegel of the Huffington Post has written about this, and there's more to come on that one for sure. Um, the CIA, as Robbie has just said, will be getting back to us about the letter that we sent. So they have a vested interest in finding out what's going on. Another reason why disclosure is going to be affected by this. The other thing that my news agency has covered this worldwide, and people are picking up on it. Now, the next thing will be, and this is my prediction, 60 Minutes. People like Leslie Stahl, Steve Croft, Morley Safer... They have to be the next people to find out about this. They will get a hold of this because you don't get the CIA involved in this just on on a whim. These people are going to pick up on this. And my prediction is that Chase Brandon at some point will be on 60 Minutes. And this will be the tipping point for disclosure. This is a game breaker as far as I'm concerned. Wow. Uh, You know, can I make a prediction? Not to throw, not to be the human sandbag here. Go ahead. But they're going to, this is going to, just like when Edgar Mitchell uh, was in the UK and was making these incredible uh, pronouncements about about aliens and and being told uh, by people, I believe, in the Pentagon and so forth that that the ETs are real and and, uh, they are interacting with, with, with governments here on Earth. What did that get? Maybe 48 hours in in the news cycle and then was dropped. Why do you believe that same thing is not going to happen here? I think it is. What I would say, can I, can I just say something there? Yes. I, I, would, I actually agree with you there, uh, Richard, um, to an extent. The only difference there is that Mitchell was talking, um, presumably off his own back, completely autonomously, uh, having decided to come forward with, with certain information that he'd received secondhand. Um, whereas Brandon is here is talking uh, quite possibly, and presumably probably, with the official backing of the CIA, with with the with the nod, and he's talking, he's claiming whether or not it's true, he's claiming to have seen the proof with his own eyes. 
Mitchell did not claim that. So there's a difference, there is a distinction, but I agree that even even though there is that distinction, I don't know that this is a game-changer. I do think it's a very important development, and we should scrutinise it very carefully, but I, I don't think it's necessarily the road to disclosure. And if it is the road to disclosure, it's the wrong road to be on. Grant Cameron, why isn't this a huge story? Uh, well, I'd like to comment on what, what everybody's making these predictions. My prediction, uh, Victor is got a point that at some point they're going to push this too far and they're going to get a situation where 60 minutes or somebody's actually going to take a look at this. This may be one of those things, but what I think the CIA has this planned, this is the 65th anniversary of Roswell. They have this under control. They know what the next move is. And what I say the next move is they're going to, they're not going to call him a liar. They're not going to say it's for real. They're just going to say, we heard the story. We look for the documents. We can't find the documents. And I predict the story will die right there. And 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 then and what becomes of of uh, of Charles Chase Brandon? Does he just he disappear from the number of people over the last thirty years who have come forward? Uh, Edgar Mitchell, being one, said he was briefed by a high-ranking military person, and. Uh, Bill Moore, the story that I'm going to release tomorrow, Bill Moore, the story that he was uh, contacted by this uh, very high CIA official uh, in 1980, and I tell the whole story of how he was given all this material, and it looked like it was going to be disclosure, the MJ-12 document. That all died out. This has happened over and over and over again for the last 30 years. Well, it'll be, interesting. Sort of it'll be interesting to see how this has played out in the media, uh, uh, you know, beyond... Uh, the next 48 hours, if it hasn't already been played out and, and, and finished. But uh, uh, Grant Cameron, presidentialufo.com, thank you so much for this. Thanks. Uh, Robbie Graham, and uh, the blog is silverscreensaucers.blogspot. Uh, I've linked to that on my website at richardserrett.com. Uh, people really owe it themselves to check out uh, uh, Robbie's uh, blog because there's some amazing information there. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you, Richard. And uh, Victor Vigiani, as always, uh, from Zeland News Network. Thank you for uh, for pulling this one together and bringing it to my attention. This is huge. Thanks, Richard. It's been um, great to get this out, and with your assistance, this may go a lot further. Zeland, give us a website for Zeland. Zeland Communications. Just Google that. Zelandcommunications.ca. All right. My thanks to David Gaskin for technical production. And uh, again, thanks to uh, WZGM in Asheville, North Carolina, for joining the Conspiracy Show family. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed, and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.